Galatians chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Jesus Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Father, we thank you now for this, your word, and we pray that you would open our ears, that your Holy Spirit would apply uh, wisdom to us, that we would go from this place uh, edified and strengthened in knowledge of your word and in application of your word. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The title is Paul and the Pillars, and the pillars are the men that he's going to see in Jerusalem that he refers to as pillars in the church. And when I read this and I, when I meditated on it, um, and perhaps also it's also influenced by what I'd been doing at the time. I, I wrote this originally a year and a half ago. And uh, at the time, I had just gone to a play with my family uh, recently. And I just perceived it as an act, a play in three acts. We've got three very clear acts that are presented here. And uh, the first is in verses 1 and 2 where he shares the gospel. The second is where he is confronted by the false brethren. And then the third is where... Uh, these pillars of Jerusalem accept him and bless him. And in a play, you have a cast. And there is a cast that just kind of pours out from this text. The first in order of appearance are Paul and Barnabas and Titus. These are the three that end up traveling to uh, Jerusalem. And then you have these false brethren that just kind of pop into the story at verse 3. And then you have the acceptance and blessing of the pillars. Now, the pillars kind of appeared earlier also. They were referred to, but they appear later in the story. They appear by reference initially. So now, imagine, I mean, most all of us have probably gone to a play. Uh, maybe those of us only that are adults have bothered to read the program uh, in the play. I find enjoy, a joy in that myself. And plus, we like to get everywhere early, so we're typically in our seats maybe 30 minutes before the thing gets started. And what they'll do is tell you about the cast, who's playing this part, who's playing that part. And so that's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to take a few minutes to tell you about the cast in our play. Who are these people? And what significance is it that here they are in the Bible and living out this story that I'm telling you about? So first we have Paul. He is the main character, and he is, in our play, the hero. He had been a Christian at this point probably about 16 or 17 years. He'd been saved only about three years after Christ's crucifixion. And yet by this time, he's been a Christian for 16, 17 years. He, when he was converted, he did go to Jerusalem after he'd been a Christian for three years, but he was only there for 15 days, he said. And while he was there, he only met a couple of the apostles. And yet he was preaching publicly so successfully that the Jews immediately wanted to kill him. And he was under threat of the Jewish religion very quickly in his, in his ministry there in Jerusalem. So he was smuggled out of Jerusalem at that time. And it was Barnabas, when Paul had come to Jerusalem, that brought him to the other apostles to say, hey, look at this guy. You, I want you to meet this guy. And so it was Barnabas, his, his friend and longtime co-worker, that initially introduced him to the uh, these pillars that he now goes back to meet. Not all of them. He'd only met Peter at that time. He hadn't met James, the brother of Jesus, or John, the son of Zebedee. So now later, seven years later, the text says, he was ministering in Syria and Cilicia all these years, which is north, maybe 200, 250 miles, something like that. So for us, I guess that would be what? Somewhere along the border of South and North Dakota or something. So they're that, he's that far away from Jerusalem. And he's been working up there. And he was based in Tarsus, which was his hometown. And Pastor Kaiser walked us through Acts long ago and showed that Paul was most likely a wealthy man from a wealthy family in Tarsus. So he had gone back home. They wanted him dead in Jerusalem, so he'd gone back to Tarsus, and he ministered throughout that whole region, spreading the gospel and building the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, in Acts, it refers to Barnabas as going and seeking out Paul to bring him to Antioch. And then over the course of a year, the two of them built the church in Antioch, and it must have been fabulously successful because it says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. And Antioch, I think, was a church that really properly exemplified what the church was going to become because you had a good mixture of Jews and Gentiles. So it was uh, Paul and Barnabas that were really planting this modern church because in Jerusalem you had an awful lot of Jews. And we'll get to it maybe uh, a little bit today and some next week about the problems that were coming up in churches that predominantly were filled with Jews. Uh, but anyway, at this time a man by the name of Agabus and several other prophets came from Jerusalem and uh, prophesied that there was going to be this worldwide famine. So immediately the church in Antioch voted to have Paul and Barnabas begin to be the leaders of the collections that would one day be needed to address that famine. And so probably within a year and a half to two years, they had to go to Jerusalem with this that they had collected because the famine hit, Jerusalem uh, believers were suffering, and this church wanted to help. Now, uh, Paul had lived in Tarsus, and yet he'd been in Antioch, and at this time he goes on this mission trip with Barnabas. They're gone for two years, and they return. At the time that he's writing this letter, it's most likely been about a year after he's returned from his first mission trip, and he's about to go on his second. And yet he's writing to the Galatians, a, a church that he had founded on that first mission trip, 
to write to them about the troubles that they were experiencing and trying to resol- help them resolve them. And, uh, I be- and now, too, let me share with you that this is one stream of thought that kind of ties everything together in time. There are various of these. Uh, people have different uh, beliefs that they, sh- they pull all the uh, letters of Paul together with Acts and stream them all together. And like I've been listening to the Geneva Bible on tape now, and it's, it's every book of Paul's begins with a preference saying, this was written by Paul, and then it gives all this background. And I'm like, where do they get that background from? Because half of it isn't what we now at least believe to be the case. Uh, but anyway, some translators of the Bible have given little blurbs at the beginning to say, this is when this was written, this is where it was written, this is why it was written. I wouldn't necessarily believe those to be true. Uh, There are varieties of opinion, but this is one. And so I'm just kind of telling you that I'm not going to get into a bunch of tedious detail as to why I believe this to to be true. I just believe it to be true. You might have studied it. You might have a different, uh, you know, timeline but I know I've tried to square mine with Phil's, and it's, it's not easy. It's really hard to study time. No, not to square with Phil's, but, it, <laughs> but it's really hard to walk through time and knit everything together and figure out where all these dangling pointers are that point to things that you're not tying in. So anyway, I'll try not to get that tedious. Uh, Barnabas is the next character, and Barney, Barnabas is a Jew. He's a Levite. And he's from Cyprus. So now that's the island out in the Mediterranean. And so you know that he's not kind of at the core of the Levitical priesthood that's serving in Jerusalem. But yet he is a Levite. And so he probably is active with whatever Jewish uh, uh, you know, religion vestiges or, or presence is there in Cyprus. He is referred to as a son of encouragement and To our knowledge, he was saved very, very early. Acts 4 refers to him as being saved early and bringing gifts to the apostles at that time, you know, just after Christ ascended. So he embraced Christianity early. Uh, He's the one, as I said, that brought Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem on his first visit, and he traveled actively with Paul. He ministered with him probably for at least seven or eight years in the Syria and Cilicia area that I mentioned is on the border of South and North Dakota, and uh, he also ministered in Antioch with him for a year, helping to build that vibrant church that really became a standard of, of what the Christian church was going to be throughout all the world. The next person is Titus. Titus is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a Greek. And he is introduced right here in, in Galatians uh, 2.1, and he was helpful to Paul. In all of this time in this ministry, in Antioch, in Corinth, he went with, with him on his missionary journeys, and also he left him in Crete to found the church there. He was the elder that Paul communicated with in Crete, and that's why he wrote the letter of Titus to him while he was there. Uh, now we have the pillars, the three pillars that are in Jerusalem. We have Peter, obviously. Everybody knows Peter. James is confusing because this is not James, the son of Zebedee. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He was obviously not a believer, most likely, at the time of Jesus' death, because his family had really renounced him. His family didn't want to have anything to do with him. So this would be, of course, his half-brother. But he came to be a stalwart Christian. He was referred to as James the Just. And when James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred a few years earlier in Jerusalem, James the Just appears to have moved kind of into his role, taken his place. And so you had a man named James replaced by a man named James. And uh, then you have John, the son of Zebedee. 
So these three men are pillars in the church in Jerusalem. They're really uh, the elders that were more or less managing the entire church at that time, really, until Paul came along. Uh, now we have the false brethren. The false brethren are introduced in verse 4, and it's very obvious that they're false. Listen to this. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission. We don't know any of these people. We just know that they shouldn't have been there. They weren't invited. They snuck in, and they had a diabolical plot to undermine whatever it was the church was doing at this council in Jerusalem. Now, I want to not only regard this as a play, as I've said, but I want to regard it as a melodrama. And in a melodrama, there's audience participation. And so when I mention Paul, the hero, I want you all to cheer and hurrah. Give me, give me a cheer and hurrah. Give me another one. Very nice, very nice. So when I say Paul, the hero, now not just if I say Paul, because I might say that a lot. But if I say Paul the hero, I want you to remember to cheer and hurrah. Now, if I say the false brethren villains, then what do I want you to do? Very nice, very nice. Okay, now, so this is audience participation. When I say these, now, we can't say them too loudly because we have sleeping babies and maybe some sleeping adults. But, But try to be courteous to those around you. Okay, now, the first act opens with Paul, Barnabas, and Titus traveling to Jerusalem. And here, why are they going? Now, I already told you why they're going. They actually are a deputation of the Antioch church to take famine relief supplies to Jerusalem. But why is Paul going? We know why the church is sending him, but yet look at why he's going. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. This is the revelation of Agabus in order to talk about the famine and communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. So see, Paul has another motive for going to Jerusalem, and that is to preach the gospel. He preaches the gospel everywhere he goes. And so it's no wonder that he's doing that. But listen to the next phrase but privately to those who were of reputation. So he's going up there to preach the gospel, but he's going to preach privately to those who were were of reputation. And he means the pillars, those men. Now, he had only ever met Peter, and that was 11 years earlier. And here he is going up again. He's been very active in his ministry, and he's been having to, to handle a lot of challenges in this church in Antioch. Now, we've had years for two different types of churches to develop. One that's kind of revolving around an offshoot of Judaism, which is what is happening in Jerusalem, and the other is really being founded within pretty much entirely Gentile, if not, well, I'm sure there were Jews there, but yet much, much stronger Gentile influence. And so here he is going to present to the pillars the gospel. This is the truth. He's going to share with them his vision of what the church of God should be. And listen to this. Lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. He's going to speak to them privately, lest by any means I had run or am running in vain. Now, what does he mean by that phrase? 
does he mean that his 10 works in Antioch might be deemed to be in vain if his gospel differs from their gospel? If you were here last Sunday, you know the answer to that question. No, there is only one gospel. And maybe it wasn't last week, maybe it was two weeks ago. But, but Paul emphasized there's only one gospel, one true gospel. There is not two. And he is not about to back down on what he knows to be the gospel that was revealed to him by revelation by Christ himself. He is not going to back down from that. But yet, being tactful and being a very good leader, frankly, he is going to present his gospel to these pillars such that if they have any bone to pick with him about it, he can have it out with them privately, not embarrass them publicly, not have to go toe-to-toe with them publicly because we know what happens then. People get entrenched in their views and they refuse to talk to one another because their pride gets in the way. Even pride of people as instrumental to the founding of the church as these men potentially could allow pride to get in their way. And so he doesn't do that. But now, this does end in suspense. Act 1 ends in suspense. Why? Because suddenly, Act 2 starts. Act 1 isn't even resolved. He's presenting the gospel to them, but it doesn't say what the outcome was. It doesn't say whether that was helpful or not. It doesn't say whether it was successful or not. Now, he does not want public enemies uh, to be made of these men. And so he wants to be of one mind, yet he knows it takes time. Yet in this private meeting, false brethren are present, and they immediately begin to raise a ruckus. And so the first thing he and, to their credit, the pillars do is address the ruckus first. They get rid of these false brethren that should have never been there in the first place. Now, Paul, our hero, his plans were interrupted, but he didn't give up. He kept persisting. And so now we come into Act 2, where the villains appear. So now here, let me reread this. Not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred, now when he says this occurred, this was this attempt at compelling Titus to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. How many more derogatory terms could Paul use for these men? Secretive, sneaky, spies villains. So, Paul pulls no punches in confronting them. He's presenting his gospel privately to these pillars in the church, and immediately he's getting this blowback from these false brethren that are in their midst that start saying, hey, why is Titus here? Who is this Greek? Is he circumcised? You know, I, I mean, you know, this gets pretty personal here, doesn't it? I don't know how they verified these types of things in that time. But, but uh, you know, yeah. n- nowadays we, we have these screeners we can run them through at the airport, right? But, but I, don't know how, I don't know how they did it. Maybe they had to go to that private room. I don't know. But anyway, Paul, our hero, triumphs. He says, we did not yield submission even for an hour. So... What's interesting is he had hoped to go to them privately and get total resolution, but even in the private meeting, he gets this opposition. 
and he and the pillars do a good job. And now we have an indicator as to where they're going to go. They are siding with Paul in this, obviously, because they're present. He's sharing the gospel with them. And as, as they're confronting Titus, Paul and obviously the men who he's there to present to deal with the situation. So, the demands of these uh, false brothers were rejected, and the others are shown to be in total agreement at this point. Now, Christian Gentiles, by this acceptance here, we know that Christian Gentiles did not have to first pass through Judaism. In Jerusalem, though, later in a couple chapters in, in Acts 15, you've really got this conflict come up. Must Gentiles go through Judaism in order to get to Christianity? And, and the answer comes down clearly, no. But it's still ambiguous. You're still dealing with a lot of conflict throughout the established church where they're all fighting about this. Now, the question I have for you, though, is why is the victory that Paul had experienced in this, in this private meeting in Jerusalem, what's the importance of it? Why is he bringing it up in this letter that he's writing to the Galatians? Because here he is about two years later writing concerning what had occurred on this earlier trip to Jerusalem, even before he'd gone on his first missionary journey. I believe it's here. In verse 5, he says, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So their victory two years earlier with that private meeting meant that the gospel is protected, that the gospel is still going forth in its purity to save people, to transform people, not just to make them into Jews, not to turn them into, into law keepers, but to turn them into Christians. He wants them to be Christians, not Jews. And yet, what is it that he's accused the Galatians of? Of falling under the sway of the Judaizers. That's exactly why he's writing this whole letter to the Galatians. So what he's relating to them is an earlier battle where the same thing had come up, he had been victorious, and the men of the Jerusalem church, the elders, were present at the meeting. So he said, this is the way it is. This is the standard of Christianity. You do not have to become circumcised. You do not have to become a Jew and enter into all of the uh, uh, obedience to all these holy days and all these various law washings and things. No, all of that is uh, cast aside. All of it means nothing. So now Paul, our hero, tells of this victory so that he can allow his Galatian brethren to be victorious over the villains they face. Very good, very good. Okay, no, now, now we're coming into the third uh, act, and before we get into the details of it, I want to introduce some things. Though the third act ends beautifully, uh, we'll cover that you know, as we get to it, but there is tension in the third act still. And let me point it out to you. You might see it on a simple reading of this, but let me read you several verses that point to tension between Paul and the pillars. First, I'll start with verse 2. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation. Now, he doesn't say elders. Why is it that he wouldn't say elders? Why is it they wouldn't say apostles? He says those that were of reputation. And I'm not sure that he doesn't mean that as some sort of negative statement about this. And let me point out why. 
Go ahead to verse 6. But from those who seemed to be something, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Who's he referring to when he says those who seem to be something? In verse 6, he's referring to those elders in Jerusalem. He's referring to James and John and Peter. And yet, he had been accused of being less than them. They're somebody. You're nobody. We should follow them. We don't need to follow you. So he's refuting that fallacy. He's saying, no, no, no. You, I know, you know, these people have this reputation, that these people have this reputation in Jerusalem. But I'm telling you, that the truth honors no reputation. The truth is the truth, and I'm sharing with you the truth. And then we look again at verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, who seemed to be pillars, again, there is kind of a knock at these three men. They seemed to be pillars in the church. Why would Paul speak this way? Is this... Do you guys, do you little children know what the green-eyed monster is? What's the green-eyed monster, Jonathan? The green-eyed monster is... Well, partly. Anybody know? What's the one word that describes the green-eyed monster? Jealousy. Jealousy is the green-eyed monster. And so the question I have for you, is Paul really just speaking out of his jealousy? And do you know what my answer is? Yes. He is speaking out of his jealousy. But what's he jealous of? What's he jealous for? He's jealous for God's reputation in this. If the pillars are overshadowing the glory of God, they should be taken down. That's what Paul is alluding to, I believe. He is jealous. He's jealous for the reputation of God in the church in Jerusalem in the Christian church that's being founded here. And he speaks it very clearly, I think, if you'd only read it and think, why is Paul acting this way? You know, I, I, I personally know jealousy. I, as a kid, I was very jealous. I remember in seventh grade, there was this girl, she and I liked each other, and she had come to my uh, practice for my Little League game. It, we had it in this weird place, I don't remember why, but we'd only ever had it once there. But it's only like 100 yards from her house. But my friend came with me, my best friend came with me, and he wasn't on my little league team. So I'm over here practicing, and the two of them are over there talking on the, on the outside, the, and I keep looking over, and they're laughing. And then they walk away, they walk over to her house. I'm, I'm fuming. And so once the practice is over, by that time they'd walked back, and they had had like a drink of lemonade at her house, I just didn't say anything. I took off the ring she'd given me, I flung it into the <laughs> graveyard that was next door, and I got on my bike and I rode home. That's the green-eyed monster. That's me living out my foolish pride, being upset with my best friend for getting a drink at my girlfriend's house. But uh, that is jealousy, and jealousy makes us do crazy, stupid things. And so some people were accusing Paul of this. Paul, you're just jealous. You were somebody once, but now you're a nobody, and you're upset about that. He's like, no, I, I chose to be a nobody. I want to be a nobody. I want only God to be the somebody in my life now. And I want to point out to all you folks that you shouldn't be setting these men up on pillars, on pedestals. They are 
good men. They are elders in the church, but don't ever put them before God. I believe that's what he's doing. Now, note God's plan here. I think God's plan is beautiful. He took nobodies like fishermen and tax collectors and made them into the first elders in his church. And yet that wasn't enough. He took a Paul, the cream of the crop among the Jews, totally humbled him, emptied him of all of his earthly pride, and then placed him in his church. And so you have the people of the early church honoring these nobodies and really considering Paul a nobody because he just used to be that Jewish teacher and, you know, he's now a nobody. But yet, where is the tendency to pride then going to pop up its ugly head? Is it going to be in Paul? Perhaps. But yet, he's already thoroughly emptied himself, just as Christ was emptied of everything. Paul was emptied of everything, and he counted it rubbish that he could be embraced by Christ. And yet, with the fishermen who just overnight sensations, now they're suddenly running this huge church, and they're admired by everybody. I mean, even the unbelievers, it's like, oh, did you hear what Peter did? Yeah, yeah, the, you know, his shadow fell on this person, or, or this, you know, he touched this or touched that. You know, you've got these former nobodies, fishermen, who are famous in and around Jerusalem. And so what do you think would happen to them? They might potentially become inflated, become prideful. And so you have a Paul who is to them an example of a man who was there and experienced that and has cast it aside for the sake of following God. So he can be their example to keep them humble. And when you read the letters of Peter later, and he refers to Paul, you can see that he speaks with admiration. I believe you even can sense that he speaks with some fear. I mean, he really greatly admired Paul. And yet, I believe it was God introducing this kind of balance in the early church leaders to not allow pride to grow too volatile and dangerous. And I believe here's an instance of where Paul was exerting that force that God had created him for in the early church to prevent pride from becoming a huge factor. Now, let's get into the third act. We haven't really talked about it yet. Verse 6 shows that Paul was not in awe of these pillars, and you needed someone to go there that was not in awe of them. But they recognized and they accepted the blessing that God had given to Paul's ministry. And let me read verses 7 through 9 again. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship and the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Those three men extended to Paul, Barnabas, and Titus the right hand of fellowship. That is a beautiful phrase. I want you to think about this. This is extremely important. You had here five, uh, five, six men meeting, right? You had Paul, Barnabas, Titus. You had Peter, James, and John. These six men are meeting here, and they're all shaking hands, agreeing to divvy up the world into two camps to be evangelized. You take the circumcised, we'll take the uncircumcised. You take the Jews, we'll take the Gentiles. The audacity of what they were deciding there that day. And yet, it worked. God blessed them with tremendous growth to where within two centuries, Christianity had taken over the known world. 
It had conquered that Roman world such that Constantine embraced Christianity as the religion of the empire. And yet it's because of men like this who were audacious enough to shake hands and divide the whole world up in this way. And yet this is not atypical. They all pretty much died. It, uh, John, we don't know about. We don't believe he died. We do believe he died a peaceful death. But let me share with you. I don't have any information on Titus, but I have information on the others. Now, this is according to other documents and church tradition to some extent. It's not uh, supported or, or uh, defined in the scripture. But within 20 years, four of these five men were dead. Uh, Barnabas, tortured and stoned to death in 61 AD in Cyprus. James the Just, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off the temple in 62 AD. He survived the fall, but was then stoned and clubbed to death. You have Peter, who was crucified by Nero in 64 to 67 AD, but who, when he was to be crucified, demanded he, he be turned upside down because he didn't view himself to be worthy of being crucified as Christ was crucified. He felt that he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. You had Paul, who was tortured and beheaded by Nero in Rome about that same time. And you had John, who escaped death, but he was actually boiled in oil once. Yet he lived, and so they let him live. They didn't kill him after he'd survived that attempt at taking his life. And he uh, then supposedly died peacefully. And the, the thing I want to end with is the fact that missionaries uh, still die. And it's wonderful to read missionary stories, and uh, you, you don't read of their deaths typically in the story, although some recently I, I have, uh, have talked about their deaths. Um, but, you know, some of the, mission, the best missionaries really didn't die. Uh, in service to God in these foreign lands. They lived to tell about it. And they went on uh, to lives of, of like cruising uh, Europe or the States or wherever in the Western world in order to speak of their travels and speak of their successes and uh, encourage people to enter into the missionary field. But in the 20th century, there was probably no more famous martyrdom than those that landed in Ecuador uh, in 19, what was it, 56, I believe. Uh, January 8th, 56, they'd been trying to reach out to these Alka Indians, these very, very violent Amazonian Indians, uh, for weeks. They'd been uh, distributing them goods, and they'd have the plane circle, and this bucket would kind of stay put, and the, and the Indians would come over and grab all the stuff out of the bucket, and they had even begun to put some stuff in. And once they put something in, the men figured it's time to go in. We, it's time for us to really go in and make contact with them. But yet, when they went there, they were all killed. Even though they had rifles in their plane, they refused to use them. They had agreed that they would not. And yet uh, that just galvanized the world because what it pointed out in our modern times was the uh, amazing stupidity of Christians. That's what the vast number of the people in the world thought. What a waste. What are these guys doing? Even within the church, there were people that regarded these deaths as useless, worthless, uh, of no value. Yet, within years, there were many, many missionaries that pointed to that event and said, that's why I came to the mission field. 300 people within a few years said, I'm a missionary because of those men being killed on Palm Beach. So we don't know why, it's almost odd, but we fight against these fears. We have courage despite our fears. And so when we hear of something like this, people sacrificing themselves, then we applaud them as Christians. And yet, 
it really does motivate some of us to want to be like them, to emulate them, to follow in their footsteps, not necessarily to go to our deaths, but at least be willing to. So it challenges us in our faith. But you don't have to be a missionary to want to serve God in this way. You don't have to. Now, let me read to you. I think part of the reason they're so famous is Jim Elliot was such a great writer. For being so young when he died, he has just these beautiful phrases. And by far the most famous one is this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think most of us have heard that. But I want to read you another one. This was in his journal. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? This is what he asked himself. Am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be aflame. But a flame is transient, often short-lived. Can you bear this, my soul's short life? In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. So see, he asked his own question, am I ignitable? And he says, well, if I do ignite, if I am saturated in the oil of the Holy Spirit, I might die young. But hey, Jesus died young, so I'd be following in his footsteps. Those are wonderful footsteps to be following in. So you don't have to be a missionary to be ignitable. You just have to want to serve God, love God, set aside self, pursue him with who you are and what you're to do, and you will be ignitable. You will be used by God. You might not have to go to Ecuador and die even. He might use you right where you are, but will you suffer abuse? Yeah, you know it. That's why we tend to be cowards. That's why we tend not to want to be saturated in the Holy Spirit, because we will be persecuted as Christ promised us. But that should be something that we want, not something that we endure, but something that we want. Uh, just as uh, when they were beaten, the early apostles, they were beaten, and they went from there celebrating that they had been deemed worthy to be beaten for the cause of Christ. Just amazing way to think about uh, being oppressed by our society. For instance, when we, we always want to stand up for our rights, just as kind of Gary spoke to earlier about the Constitution and things, and I don't say that we shouldn't. We should. Paul stood up for his rights. But yet we also must be prepared to suffer and yet still love those that oppose us. We must be able to pursue the right things on this earth and yet not be so upset by not winning that we refuse to plug ourselves into a society that doesn't understand us. We want them to understand us, and yet they can't. You know this. The the world does not understand our Christianity as it did not understand these five men's Christianity as it did not understand Christ. So don't expect it of them. You be prepared to speak to it, be prepared to speak to why you're willing to die, but yet don't expect them to understand. You, you want to pray for them. You want to love them. So let's pray. Father, we ask you to be with us. We ask you to make us uh, saturated by your Holy Spirit uh, to want and to long to be ignited uh, for you, for the benefit of your kingdom. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would put us into situations that would allow for this, have us not to flee from it, have us not to seek to be free from it. But, Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to have our lives count for something, not just to go through lives as any typical unbeliever would. But, Father, please make us lights, make us the salt of this earth. 
We plead with you, Father, to have your Holy Spirit enter into our hearts, convict us of sin, cause us to live for you, and to want to please you in all that we do. We ask you to be with us, to guide us this day, to uh, get us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen.